Well, this is Pastor George Sayor on the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. And before we get to our exciting interview with Melton Duncan again, he's going to be walking us through and guiding us kind of an introduction to the Book of Church Order. I have some related news that I wanted to share briefly, that there is a newly published resource for presbyters called Parliamentary Procedure for Presbyters. This booklet will be given out at the Gospel Reformation Network Conference, which is next week, and at the Gospel Reformation Network Luncheon, which is at General Assembly on Wednesday. There are tickets available for both of these events. Uh, you don't want to miss them, so you'll be able to get that resource on Parliamentary Procedure, which just is a guide for how to use the Book of Church Order, how to use Robert's Rules, and it's just really a good introductory guide. I hope you come to the Gospel Reformation Network Conference next week in Charlotte, North Carolina on May 3rd and 4th. And uh, it'll just be a real blessing. Harry Reeder will be speaking, Kevin DeYoung speaking, Dr. O. Palmer Robertson, uh, John Payne, and, and a whole bunch of others that we uh, look forward to hearing from. So get your tickets for the GRN conference, May 3rd and 4th. There's still some available. And I understand the Wednesday luncheon with the Gospel Reformation Network is almost sold out. And so get your tickets for that luncheon. And with that, we will go to our discussion. Enjoy. At the end of, the, at the end of this discussion with Mel Duncan, I'll play a short two-minute video from John Payne, the director of the Gospel Reformation Network, explaining a little more about that. Well, here we are again on the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I'm with ruling elder Melton Duncan again. And I, I know you all probably enjoyed our last conversation as we got to know Mel a little bit and also learn about the Gospel Reformation Network. Why I have another discussion with Mel is because he, pre he has this uh, packet that he presents on the Book of Church Order. And I know the Book of Church Order is daunting to so many well, people in the PCA and ruling elders, and they often rely on their teaching elders to, to kind of point them to where something is. And the truth is the teaching elders often don't know it either. And yet, you know, we're called to do things, all things decently in order, Mel. And so you've put together this guide. I'm going to, I'm going to try to share it. And you're gracious enough to walk us through it and give us a little primer on the book of church order. And so let's, uh, let's see where this goes. Well, first of all, how did you, I mean, this is a lot of work this booklet. How did you come up with this and why, what was the, the format for it that you thought would be helpful for people? Well, George, thank you again for having me back on the program. I love uh, this podcast Absolutely. and I love our conversations and I appreciate you and I'm grateful to be uh, working with you within the PCA. And uh, as you know, I'm a ruling elder in a, in a PCA church and also serve as a clerk uh, within uh, my presbytery here in upstate South Carolina. And over the last decade or so, I've had occasion, uh, many occasions, where I've had to learn the BCO on the fly. Uh, I think I was introduced to this by my dad, but it was really when I was a young deacon, uh, I was paired with a ruling elder here in, in my local church uh, who really gave me an interest in learning this book. And he was a, a godly older man who really cared about doing the right thing in the right way. And he was the one who taught me or introduced me really uh, to the Book of Church Order. It's a wonderful uh, document that a lot of people are afraid of, but I, one of the things I hope that I'll communicate today uh, that I try to do in my own ministry is that it's a really useful tool for people uh, to learn. Um, I, I have a little image there on your screen of how PCA people ought to view authority. We're, we're Bible people, and when you prick uh, our skin, we should be bleeding Bible. Uh, but uh, we believe as uh, Westminster Confession people that the Westminster Confession of Faith is the best expression of biblical Christianity, and that's what it means to be confessional. It's not something up against the Bible. It's really the, the best expression of Bible truth. And so uh, as part of that, uh, we have as part of our Constitution uh, the, the wonderful blue book, the BCO, the, the BOCO, the, the book sometimes it's called, uh, the Book of Church Order. And 
Uh, that book of church order is interesting in a number of ways. Uh, some of your listeners and viewers may not know that part of that book of church order was actually written by the same men who wrote the Westminster Assembly, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. When you uh, pick up your book of church order, you know that there are uh, three main sections in it. The first section deals with our form of government. The second main section deals with our rules of discipline. And the third section is called the Directory of Worship. Parts of that Directory of Worship were, were written actually by the Westminster Divines. And so part of your Book of Church Order was actually begun by the same men who gave you your confessional understanding of Christianity. And that's not a small matter as we begin this conversation because the Book of Church Order is a 500-year living document that is an attempt to get uh, biblical Presbyterianism right. Uh, sometimes people talk about the Constitution being a living and breathing document, and a lot of times conservatives will do that as a way to kind of poo-poo the Constitution because they, they don't want the Constitution to ever change. The reality is uh, the Book of Church Order has been changed many, many times in very small, careful ways, and yet if you picked up a Book of Church Order from 200 years ago and read a chapter, in many ways it would seem exactly like the Book of Church Order we have today. And that's actually the sign of something that's working and is useful uh, and has some real authority and merit and meaning. Uh, one of the great things about being in the PCA, George, is that we didn't invent our philosophy of ministry. We didn't invent the rules of how we connect to one another. And Presbyterianism, generally speaking, works every time you try to use it. Uh, when when um, some years ago, uh, on an Easter Sunday here at my church, uh, we had Wait, some... wait, wait. Yeah, Mel, yeah. So is that like... <laughs> You're funny sometimes. Do you know that? <laughs> well, like, like you said, that's so straight faced. So Presbyterian works every time you try to use it. Is that what you said? Yeah, and I say that because most people think church government is not in the Bible. Most right. people, uh, even many of our good PCA people, seemingly think that pragmatism and sentimentality and church custom and culture ultimately trumps uh, a biblical understanding of church government. And I'm convinced that the, the remedy for many of our PCA problems, George, are people need to know their BCO better than they do. They need to practice it. They need to be not afraid to cite it. Um, one, of, one of the great- It protects us. It protects us. It, and yeah, it, this is this is where I was going with my Easter story. We, we had an Easter Sunday one time and we had a, um, a lovely young couple visit us, uh, and they introduced themselves to me as coming from a very well-known, charismatic, Pentecostal-type church in town. And the the lady came up to me and said, I need to know uh, right now what your church believes about this subject matter. And, and I assumed that it was going to be something to do with continuing revelation or something to do with you know, eschatology, you know, the, the, the things that her church were, was known for. And the next thing that came out of her mouth, I've never forgotten, she said, what does this church believe about church government? And it just blew me away uh, because it was a young person. It was a person that you wouldn't think would care about such a thing, but it was a person who had been a member of a church who had been uh, the the victim really is the right way to say it of bad church government. She had seen the train wreck that is a church when it tries to make up things on the fly and isn't accountable to anybody but itself. And so never really was the beneficiary of, of Presbyterianism, of the genius of Presbyterianism. Graded courts, ruling jointly, not severally. The teaching elder, ruling elder, Distinction, the, the, the ideas of the jurisdiction of, of power, the, 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 all the essential elements of PCA Presbyterianism that frankly makes our denomination awesome. And uh, one of the great things about 
the PCA is the Book of Church Order. And I I put this um, this little document together uh, over a decade ago when the session of my church under Dr. Richard Phillips asked me to start working intentionally to training new leadership within our church and particularly deacons. And one of the things that I first discovered was that a lot of people just, they were afraid to even read the Book of Church Order because it's just this massive set of rules and it intimidated people. And so what I did is I put together um, a kind of a thematic document that tries to outline the main idea in each section uh, of the, the Book of Church Order. And so there's a lot of different parts to it. The, one of the ways I like to begin this talk is by telling folks uh, some of your listeners and viewers may remember that just a few months ago, uh, a new king was declared in uh, the United Kingdom, King Charles. And one of the vows he had to make was he had to uphold, and I quote, the establishment of the laws made in Scotland together with the government worship discipline rights and privileges of the Church of Scotland. And I've got a little picture there of him taking that vow in front of the accession council last September. And one of the things I love about that phrase, it's something that dates back to the 1707 Act of Union in Britain when England and Scotland became one country, is that the English made a promise that they would always allow Presbyterianism to be the established church in Scotland. And in that vow, you actually see three of the main parts of the Book of Church Order. You see government referenced, you see discipline referenced, and you see worship referenced. And those are, if I may be so bold, three of the remarkable marks of Presbyterian churches. We care about how the church is governed. We care how the church is administered rightly, uh, not just positively, but negatively, not just uh, the way we positively observe the sacraments of the church, but the way in which we uh, lovingly uh, care for the congregation through church discipline. And then we care how we worship. Uh, Presbyterians aren't normative worship people. We believe that there is a uh, there is a mandate that you need to do things that are prescribed or are warranted uh, by scripture to do. And so those three main categories make up the, the Book of Church Order. And as we look at the Book of Church Order, I, I love to point out to people, it's divided into three parts. The form of government has 26 chapters. The rules of discipline has 20 chapters. The directory of worship has 18 chapters. Altogether, there are 64 chapters with 418 sections. One section, George, has 20 subsections. And there is even one subsection with eight sub-subsections. So it's a, it's a massive document. It deals on just about every topic that you can think of, and it's a very useful thing uh, if you're learning uh, to be an, an elder or a deacon in the church. It's where you need to go to learn jargon in the church. There are certain words that we use that have specific constitutional meaning. Let me give you an example of that. In PCA General Assemblies, I like to say that there's a kind of Jedi-type battle that goes on at General Assembly <laughs> between the may people and the shall people. When you hear the word shall, that is the PCA word that means you can't wiggle out of this. You have to do it. The church is requiring you. It's an imperative. There is no suggestion involved in it. You gotta do it. When you heard the word, when you hear the word may in the PCA, you've got some flexibility with that. And that, that's kind of the, the two uh, focal points of a lot of PCA polity is whether it's a may issue or a shall issue. Let me give you another one that I've already referenced. Um, PCA power is ministerial and declarative. Uh, the, the PCA cannot, through its ministers or its courts, require you to do something, uh, sell your car, or change your will, or require you to do certain public acts that aren't warranted by scripture. 
The PCA, through its ministers and through its courts, may minister and declare God's truth to you. In that sense, uh, the PCA's message is prophetic and spiritual rather than it's civil and temporal. And that's an important part of understanding the PCA. Uh, the form of government uh, section is so important to understand kind of the rules of the PCA. I see you've got it up there. Uh, don't miss uh, the preface, uh, the, the first three sections in the preface to the Book of Church Order. It reminds us that uh, we're part of a, a kingdom. Uh, the, the church is, is a spiritual outpost of uh, God's grace. Uh, those wonderful preliminary principles uh, that you find in the preface to the Book of Church Order, those are essentially the, uh, the Declaration of Independence of the PCA. These are the things that we're, uh, th these are the reasons that American Presbyterianism was formed. And then thirdly, we have a statement of what is the Constitution. Um, if it's okay with you, George, I'd love to just kind of run through some of these to give your audience a flavor of this, and then maybe you can stop me when you have specific things that you want me to um, to draw on. Does that sound like a good idea? Yes, yes. I, I, I want to just also support what you said uh, for our listeners. I, I think if, if, you're, if you've spent any time in Presbytery or with your church session, you, you've probably run into, well, how do we do this? How, how, how do we do this? Or maybe maybe the other side where people, somebody says, well, I think we should do it this way, and I think we should do it that way. It has been so helpful to me to say, well, this is how the Book of Church Order yeah. says we, we do this. Um, the, the other thing, to your point, yeah, the language, it, that trips people up all the yeah. time. Yeah. Like, for instance, we want to say if we disagree with something that we're complaining against it. But complaint actually has an actual meaning yeah. in our judicial process. Yeah. So if you know if you if you're sending if, if you're identifying an issue in another presbytery, you're you're not complaining because a complaint is a different thing. And yeah. so people often use words and they trip over it. Another one I run into is is admonishment. Uh, and the Book of Church Order uses it in two two senses, but often somebody says I want to do church discipline and we're going to admonish them. Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, are you using a Matthew 18 version of yeah. this or use, yeah. you know. And so the, the point is it, 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 it is so helpful when you, when you go to it because it, it clarifies these things. And uh, so I appreciate you doing this for us. So yeah, where do you want to go in it? Well, why don't I touch on a, an idea that you've just given uh, me? Um, it, it, it reminds me, you know, it's not unlike when a young man is first learning how to communicate to his beloved bride. You know, there are there are words that you use that you think has a very clear uh, and, and helpful meaning that to your bride uh, means something completely different. And you've got to very, on, uh, very early on, you've got to learn how to communicate uh, with agreed upon words, with agreed upon meanings that have an agreed upon outcome. And that's what the Book of Church Order is for the PCA. If, if you want to raise an issue of discipline, the BCO tells you how to do that. Uh, the BCO also tells you that you ought to cover <clears throat> the Lord's Supper with a, with a decent tablecloth before you serve communion. The Book of Church Order also is going to tell you you ought to pray with your family and have devotions. Uh, the Book of Church Order is also going to tell you how you ought to examine a man to be a deacon or an elder in the church. The Book of Church Order is going to tell you in Chapter 5 how you ought to plant a church. Uh, that's the chapter that's been revised more than any other in the history of the PCA because we're always trying to improve that process. There just wow, are so wow. many wonderful little sections in there. And here's what I want to tell deacons and ruling elders who may be listening. This may actually be a place where you can really serve your church well. Because one yes. of the big challenges in the PCA today is that because we're a relatively young denomination, there's not, a, there's not as much institutional memory as we need. And we need people who know the rules and who know how to make an argument. Not to be argumentative, but how to make an argument. Because when you're serving, you'd like to see this happen in a session, but particularly at a Presbytery or a General Assembly, 
you have to make an argument in a certain way and that means understanding what the BCO says about a particular topic. So uh, I just want to echo what you've already said. Uh, so important to learn some of these words and with that as something of, a, of an introduction, um, let's kind of dive into the, to the early part of the Booker Church Order called the form of government. Um, you've got some hugely significant ideas covered here. What is church government? Uh, the, the BCO says that the Bible speaks to this issue, and it says that uh, Presbyterianism means, uh, uh, this would be on page three, George, um, that the, the Bible teaches representative leadership. It also says that the purpose of the church uh, is to gather uh, and uh, perfect the saints. It talks, it introduces this idea of the visible versus the invisible church. It introduces the PCA peculiar notion of a two office view. That is that there, there are two biblical offices, elder and deacon, and then there are two different kinds of elders, one teaching, one ruling. Uh, it talks about church power being joint or several. Um, this is such an important thing. Uh, when elders speak to members of the church, if they're speaking their own opinion, uh, that doesn't mean they're speaking on behalf of the church unless the whole uh, session agrees with it. Uh, and, and so you've got to understand joint power versus several power. And then you have this wonderful uh, section that officers are ordained and presbyteries are necessary. Uh, if we aren't meaningfully connected as a church, we're not being biblical. And I think this is one of the great things that draws a distinction between congregationalism and some of our Southern Baptist and independent friends is that in the PCA, you really can appeal an issue of discipline to the broader church for it to review uh, and in some cases overturn certain actions. And I'm proud of that, and I'm grateful for that. And it's what makes, it's not that the PCA is great, it's just that the Bible is great, and we're getting the Bible right. Let me, uh, let me jump in on that one. Yeah, I, just yeah. had I just had breakfast with a guy yesterday. He's not in, in these circles, so this is not uh, uh, revealing anything to anybody. But he, he fell into some sin. He's in like a non-denominational church with... With, that doesn't have our polity or structures or or guidance like, that the Book of Church Order offers. And, I mean, it, just hearing his story was heartbreaking. I mean, he, yeah. he, he sinned, and he's owning it, but, like, he's been removed from Bible studies. He's been yeah. removed from all these things, yeah. and there's there's been no... Uh, there's been no process. There's yeah. been no case. It's just it's just a decisions that are coming down. Yeah. Uh, decisions that were made without even discussing with him. Yeah. And I'm not saying the church made the wrong decisions. I just said I just felt like as a discipleship tool, the man in this process had zero. There was no discipleship. It was just decisions being leveled at him, and basically all sort of worship and fellowship has been stripped of him until he quote unquote shows repentance and there's no yeah. there's no discipleship piece of it you know yeah. and so it is it is very sad again I don't I'm only getting his perspective but th this has been helpful with the PCA is there is a process we have to follow and yeah. um, and it protects it protects members yeah and it really helps to disciple people and often the the things that I've seen is we there's often people that don't want to institute process because they yeah. feel like it's it's mean yeah. and they look for ways to work out a situation without following process and it always just it always just gets messy and it never seems to work out and yeah. yet process gives us a mechanism if we're willing to follow it yeah by which to work through these things so yeah, yeah I, I just want to confirm what you said well, that, that's that's so right. And it's not that the PCA always does this perfectly, but it's there and it's there to be used. And as one of the great things about the BCO is that these principles of uh, church government are built upon good Presbyterian and Reformed theology. And so here in the, 
in the very beginning of the BCO, you're going to see covenant language that the visible church is believers and their children, uh, that the church is in many other places and in different kinds. Uh, there's not just one true church known as the PCA church. God has had the visible church in every place and every time. And then you see this idea of what are what is the nature and uh, extent of church power and then uh, what makes up the church. Uh, chapter 4 is a fascinating chapter. Uh, families, office bearers, acts of the session, the ordinary means of grace, and the, the corporate worship of God's people. This is the demonstration of the church. Uh, it, it's really remarkable, uh, this summary of what is the church. And then I've already mentioned chapter 5 is how do you plan a church in the PCA? Uh, and then as we as we continue on, uh, we look into some of these other great ideas. What is a member? What is an officer? What is an elder? What is a deacon? What is the church? And you see all these uh, kind of textbook definitions of what these words mean and how we use them in the life of the church. We're uh, in a season of training uh, men to be uh, potential elders right now in our church and so we've we've gone through Titus and Timothy and we've tried to from the pulpit of our church talk about uh, these marks of an elder that you find in uh, BCO chapter 8 an elder should be dignified an elder should be a ruler of his own household these are examples biblical examples that the BCO lays out for us and then chapter 9 is the great chapter on the diaconate and uh, for you, you and I have had conversations about uh, some of the PCA discussions about the role of women and such in the church. The BCO actually has a perfectly good clause, BCO 9-7, which stipulates that sessions may appoint men and women uh, to assist the officers in their work. And, and I know oftentimes in, in, in my church here at Second, there are unique situations where the elders of our church know that, you know, we really need to have women involved in this situation. Oftentimes it's other women. And uh, the BCO gives us uh, categories of uh, what an ordained officer is and isn't. Uh, and then you get into the idea of the PCA as part of a Presbyterian graded court system. Uh, it's like local government, state government, and national government. And oftentimes here, I'll remind folks that it's no accident that while the Presbyterian Church was gathered in Philadelphia uh, to put together a national denomination, that America was just down the street at Independence Hall in Philadelphia writing a new constitution for our nation. You have a lot of these kind of ideas of federalism that seem very American, but perhaps you might even say are very Presbyterian notions of how authority ought to be interconnected and yet organic. Um, notions of what is authority, what is uh, the session that you find in chapter 12. And, and here you see some of the great uh, distinctions like uh, what is a senior minister, what is an assistant minister, what is an associate minister. And then you see how that plays out uh, in service at the presbytery level and at the general assembly level. Chapter 15 is a very common chapter we go to to talk about uh, how commissions work in the church and, and everybody when they hear commission their ears should perk up and know that in most cases a commission can resolve all on its own with its own authority the matter that it's been given unless the uh, authoritative body says otherwise and uh, you, you see that in chapter 15 and then you have that great uh, chapter 16 uh, defining what is vocation in the PCA. This was is interesting. I think it was last year there was an attempt to amend this during some of the BCO sexuality overtures. Uh, a sense of calling is very important to how we understand uh, the 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 purpose of, of officers in the PCA. Uh, chapter seventeen is is ordination. Chapter eighteen and. 19 deal with candidates and interns in the PCA and how you license a man to preach. Uh, chapter 20 is one of the great chapters in the book. It lays out for you how you 
uh, all the different ways you have to examine a man uh, to be a minister. And in, in my home presbytery, Calvary Presbytery, we take this very seriously. It's like a bar exam. It's like a medical board exam. We want men to know the original language of scripture. We want them to be able to explain uh, the theology of the Westminster Standards. We want them to know their catechism, but we want them to be able to put it in, in layman's words. Uh, and chapter 20 is where we get uh, some of the different um, uh, elements of, of calling a minister. Uh, you see in chapter 21 an ordination service and and as you work through this form of government, you see all the building blocks of, uh, of what makes up a, a PCA congregation. Um, I try in my little guide to ask questions of each section. Um, and and I'm, my hope is that I'll give the reader of this uh, guide um, some kind of a hook to hang their basic understanding of the BCO on and uh, that's kind of the first section of the BCO that deals with forms of government. Um, George, have you always been Presbyterian and Reformed, or are you are you new to that uh, branch of the church? I have not always been Presbyterian Reformed, but I have been in the PCA since 2008. So 15 years. I don't know. Is that if that's? I guess it's young, but it's it's not brand new. Um, well, I think the yeah. form of government is what has drawn a lot of a lot more people than we realize into the PCA. And I think if you if you look in this first section of the BCO, you're going to see some of those distinctively Presbyterian things expressed clearly. And you know, even if you're just a layman, it's going to help you understand how your church works better. Um, so that's that's the first section of the Book of Church so Order. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me key in on what you just said earlier um about the questions. So yeah, I like how you did that. Every every section sort of has the practical question one might ask, you know. Like for instance, chapter 19 which is licensure and internship. Somebody might turn to that and have no idea what that means. Yeah. But you put the question next to it, who can preach and serve like or as a minister in the PCA, who can preach or serve like a minister in the PCA? Very simple. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so that I think that's that's very helpful. Is this a document you give out to people? Yeah. I, my uh, uh, I'd use this when I when I train officers. I've I've been privileged to do that in my church, and then several churches in Calvary Press here have asked me to come help them do officer training. And so this is basically my notes that I use when I'm when I'm going through the book of church order. Okay. Well, that's great. So, so are you, uh, are you going to publish it as a book or if our I listeners think, ask for a copy of this, yeah, what should I, I tell them? I, I would say at this point, uh, stay tuned. Uh, I've been okay. encouraged to publish it and, and I may, I may go ahead and do that. Okay. So where do you want me to go now? Well, the second section deals with the rules of discipline and, and this is really the most technical part uh, of the book, and, and this is something that uh, I remember a, a friend of mine said, you never really read the rules of discipline until there's a train wreck that's happened. That's there's right. a sense yeah. in which you don't really know what's there in, until you have to have it. And I guess I would begin with some of the really helpful language that you find uh, in the BCO uh what does church discipline mean and and who should uh who should why should it be done there's some wonderful there's a wonderful phrase in chapter 27 that says mercy not wrath discipline should be like a tender mother but it should be an action of of a court and i think that's really the heart of what we want to do there are uh, positive and and negative uh senses in which we do church discipline uh, you were talking about a, a story, a conversation you had just today with sometimes there's there's private discipline, there's public uh, matters, oftentimes there's informal discipline. Um, there's a sense, George, every time you read the law of God to your congregation at Metaview that you're disciplining your congregation positively and negatively. You're modeling for them, you're, you're shining forth a beacon of light uh, into their heart from the very tablets of stone that God wrote everlasting truth on. And so 
there there's uh, a whole uh, reason given for discipline. Uh, there are definitions of of um, uh, of how of who is the proper object of discipline. There are measures that are defined, uh, and and this might be useful to to go over chapter twenty, um, uh, chapter thirty rather. Um, these are the the tools that the the church has in terms of discipline. There's admonishment, and that can be both informal and formal. Uh, there is suspension from office, uh, and also suspension from the Lord's table, um, and and those can be both of a definite, a specific duration, or an indefinite duration. That is, with no time suggested or given. Um, there's excommunication. This is perhaps the best known uh, measure of discipline in the church, but it ought to be the last uh, remedy that's used and should only be used in the most extreme situations. And then for officers in the church, there's deposition from office. That is uh, removing the man from office. Uh, as you go through the rules of discipline, you then start reading a lot of language that sounds like the language of a courtroom. And it is really the language of a courtroom. You have definitions of who the party is in a case. You have uh, definitions of evidence. You have uh, an explanation of what process is. Uh, there are some cases in the PCA where the, the person accused says, I don't want any process. I just want you to render a verdict. Oftentimes, that's a person who's been rightly convicted of their sins and they, they want to acknowledge that. But if you do that, there's a there's a way to do that. The BCO tells you how to do that. When a minister is involved, um, and this might be something good to say uh, to your listeners and viewers, uh, ministers are not members of a church. They're members of a presbytery. So when there's an issue of discipline with a minister, it's really not a local session matter or a congregation matter, it's a presbytery matter. And that's something to keep in mind. Um, and, and then there's how do you um, inflict the disciplines? Uh, what are the ways you do that? And then there are uh, processes of, you've already mentioned the word complaint. Uh, that's defined for us in chapter 43. And then what happens if you disagree with something the church has done? Well, chapter 45 tells you how to, in a robust, manly, Presbyterian way, how to dissent uh, from that. And then uh, chapter 46 outlines what the boundaries are of the local church and the local presbytery. Uh, what are the membership boundaries of those places and bodies? And that's a helpful thing to explain uh, why ministers are part of a geographical body. But oftentimes there are ministers serving outside of a church who are also member of a presbytery as well. And that chapter gives us the rules for jurisdiction. So I think it's helpful what you said about, you know, it sounds very much like a court case because it is. Maybe walk us through how, how process works. So when we use the word process, it's officially charges have been issued or or process has begun. So an indictment is written. There are specific charges. Yeah. The charges have to be uh, tied to scripture or the standards or, or something in our constitution, um, which would always go back to scripture. And uh, a case happens. Am I, am I right in that, Mel? I think the important thing is that, that ideally 99% of the time in church discipline situations, you hope the matter can be resolved without formal process. You, you hope that as a pastor teaching God's word to God's people, that people are sensitive enough to the encouragement of scripture, but also when, when you let scripture do its job, it's going to rebuke people. Uh, uh, hard preaching makes soft hearts, uh, someone famous said, uh, once said, and, and so you hope that the that the real work of church discipline is done Sunday after Sunday after, as God's people learn God's word and they apply it by the Holy Spirit to their own lives. And then there are instances 
where matters come up in the church and the elders deliberate collectively, that is jointly to use the matter of the, the church, uh, BCO, and then they go to a person and they lovingly correct or reproof or instruct or teach and that should be done patiently and carefully. Again, the language of a loving mother is used in the Book of Church Order. It should not be done um, in, in such a way that it drives someone away. Uh, but there are occasions, uh, surprise, surprise, the church is, a, is an institution full of sinners where uh, people uh, uh, in such a way need to be corrected with more than gentle admonition. And so the, the process is, and oftentimes you tend to think of these as heinous sins, but uh, it involves uh, a member of the church laying a charge down, written uh, in the court of the church, and ordinarily you, you put that on a piece of paper and you put it in the hands of your clerk. And your clerk is the person who's responsible uh, for the records of the church, the roles of the church, uh, the, the story of the church, you might even say, and is the legal representative of the church. And the session then becomes both an investigative body and a court. And so in that sense, the, the, pres the, the session has both an executive, a legislative, and a kind of judicial function about it. And the church court then uh, tries to resolve the matter. And in certain cases, they're often rare. Sometimes you really do have a courtroom scene where charges have been leveled and specifications have been given where God's word has been broken, where the book of church order is cited, and which someone is actually tried like in a courtroom. And the, the, the session, it happens at the presbytery level as well, will have someone who prosecutes the case, and then the, the, uh, the alleged uh, will have someone who can represent them almost like a defense counsel. And you can invite in uh, uh, people to testify, and you can also bring in evidence, and then the session judges and makes a ruling on the matter. And then that ruling, just like in a civil court, could be appealed to the Presbytery. And so that oftentimes happens in the context of a moral failing. Um, sadly, it happens oftentimes in the context of an officer and a divorce type situation or in a criminal situation. More and more uh, church courts are dealing with issues of abuse. Um, and, and so these rules in the rules of discipline are so helpful to the PCA in how to structure a context to hear the allegation. And it, it's not people yelling in a hallway. It's, it's like a courtroom. Bring your evidence. Make your claim. Show us your witnesses. And then the elders do what elders have done since Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, set them up in the, in the Sinai wilderness. Uh, they, they judge the matter before the Lord, and they render a verdict. And so in that sense, George, and not all sessions operate like that. Not, thank, thankfully, not all sessions have to. But if, if you are in a situation where you need to solve uh, in a Solomonic fashion, uh, the Book of Church Order gives you a way to do that. And the Presbytery gives both the, 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 you know, both parties to the case an opportunity to appeal. And in the PCA, um, because the PCA was born out of a denomination that was top-down and top-heavy, and higher courts meddled in the affairs of local courts, the PCA is averse to rushing in and overturning a lower court decision. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it won't do it if it's the right thing to do. And uh, there, there are very technical ways in which that happens, but it does happen from time to time. And again, 
I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but it it's there. And I'm really proud of the fact that it's there. And you find that in part two of the Book of Church Order. <laughs> yes. Great, Mel. Thank you. So how do you respond to the person that says Presbyterianism takes just way too long? And then the kind of the joke, well, we're Presbyterians, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I would respond to that by saying, um, how long has it taken you to become sanctified in that most glaring area of your life that you're not completely sanctified in? Uh, look, it, it, <laughs> it takes time. Uh, it, yeah. it, 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 it does. And, um, I, I've come to appreciate the fact that if something, uh, you, you think about matters of great controversy in the PCA in recent years, issues of human sexuality, I would have loved the PCA to have in the first year to have nipped that in the bud constitutionally and procedurally. But the fact that we've taken three, four, five years to get it right, we're eventually, George, going to get it right. And eventually, everybody's going to agree that because we took so long to fix our BCO, to, to drill down on examining ministers in certain areas, to improve our definitions, like with the definitions that Meadowview has given us to use on examining ministers, um, that we're eventually going to get it right. And I think taking our time to do that makes it a, a better thing, not a worse thing. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good word. Uh, for Sometimes it could feel like something's a long time, but a couple of years is a blip when we're talking about yeah. world history and, yeah. and even the history of the denomination. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we got to wrap this up. Um, I know there's a lot more there. Also, you're a member of the SJC, the Standing yeah. Judicial Commission yeah. of our denomination, and so I want to have you back on yeah. uh, for, for that. But I guess... I guess what I'll close with is what I love about one thing I love about the BCO besides the, that it gives us answers to how to do things in very organized and fair ways. I just love, you mentioned the preface. I mean, it begins with the you know, preface, the Roman numeral one, the King and head of the church, Jesus Christ, upon whose shoulders the government rests, whose name is called wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, who sits upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth forevermore, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. And then it goes on for paragraphs just extolling the beauty, the beauty of our Savior who rules and reigns in righteousness and justice. And then you just see how the foundation of, of this book as you read it is laid in and under Christ. And I love, uh, I've been on credentials or examining committees on both presbyteries I was in, and, and, and we always ask, like, you know, who's the head of the church? Yeah. You know, and, and you just want the person not to say yeah. the, the senior pastor. Right, you know, it's right. Jesus Christ. Right. And then the preliminary principles are absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Like, any nobody could say, like, the the preface, the preliminary principles are are dry reading and then when we get to the constitution defined the constitution of the presbyterian church in america which is subject to and subordinate to the scriptures of the old and new testaments and so there you just have i mean like we're going to be a denomination that is founded on the kingship and the lordship of jesus christ and we are everything we do is subordinate to the scriptures and then it just it just flows from there and so thank you for your work on this, for your training on it, for encouraging all of us to to be better at this. And so I just encourage our ruling elders to pick up the BCL and start reading it from the beginning. And you'll, I think you'll be, I think you're going to like, you'll say, oh, that's how we were supposed to do that. Man, that would have been so much easier. So uh, those are those are some of my closing comments. Mel, if you have anything else you want to share before we sign off? Well, I, I can't not encourage our folks to end their journey in the BCO by getting into that last section. And not all of it is constitutional. There are just several chapters in there that deal with the sacraments and in a little section on marriage that we added recently. But it's some of the most fruitful and godly language in the Book of Church Order uh, that remind us how we ought to worship, uh, how we ought to uh, how we ought to serve one another in deeds of 
love and necessity. And then at the very end of the Book of Church Order, there's actually a very useful appendix that shows people how to search uh, the BCO by topics. And uh, some people may find that uh, the best way to uh, dig in uh, by picking a, uh, a topic and then going from there uh, throughout their book. But uh, George, thank you for giving me the chance to talk to you about the Book of Church Order and sharing my love for it with your audience. And thank you for what you're doing here on this podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Al. Yeah, I know we got cut short. Uh, we got I, I got to run. Unfortunately, we could go on for a long. But I'll have you on again if you're willing to do I'd it. I'd love to do and, it. And yes, and so we, we're going to talk SJC another yep. time. Yep. I want to talk to you about church administration because that's something we, we yeah, share and I know I could learn from you. Yeah. And then maybe maybe we would do more on the BCO. So thanks again. And thank you to anybody who's listened. This is Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen. And uh, pick up your BCO and read it. Hello, my name is John Payne, and I have the privilege of serving as the executive coordinator of the Gospel Reformation Network, a network of PCA teaching and ruling elders who are committed to cultivating healthy Reformed churches in the PCA. As we expand our ministries, we continue to challenge the PCA to maintain biblical fidelity and confessional integrity. That is an unyielding commitment to the inerrancy, inspiration, authority, sufficiency, and efficacy of scripture for faith and practice, along with a resolute adherence to the Westminster standards. We also want the PCA to be gospel-driven and Christ-exalting in ministry, that there'd be a sincere passion to proclaim the gospel of grace, always with the aim of exalting Christ in God's people. We also want to challenge the PCA to be earnest in prayer and committed to expository preaching, that is, to have a resolve to practice fervent prayer in the closet and from the pulpit, along with an unbending dedication to expository preaching that informs the mind and transforms the heart. In addition, there is godly leadership. We want to encourage PCA pastors to cultivate piety in their lives. And then there's reformed worship. We want to challenge the PCA to be committed to the regulative principle of worship and worshiping according to the Word of God and our confession. And finally, missional clarity and church multiplication. We want to encourage and challenge the PCA to be committed to what the Bible calls the mission of the church. If you're interested in learning more about the Gospel Reformation Network, go to our informative website, or better yet, join us at one of our future events as we seek together to cultivate healthy reformed churches in the PCA. Am I, am I right in that? No. Well, I, I've, I, yes and no, George. I, I, I generally think George is always right on all matters. So I want to get that on the record. Uh, here, <laughs> You're right. Your, your podcast. I, I, 